As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is going to be a very short cold open because we're here to continue the saga of the Oak Island Money Pit. But before we get to that, I just wanted to quickly say thank you to everybody who has filled out the survey that we mentioned that you can get to on our homepage at astonishinglegends.com. Uh, please keep those answers coming because it helps us identify sponsors who want to work with us and, and proves that real people are listening and we're not just saying that real people are listening. <laughs> It really is only six easy questions. Yeah, they're very right? simple. They don't make you dig out your you know tax forms or anything like no. that. No. It's very simple. Uh, you should know the answers already. Yes. I would think. Yes. Yeah. It takes yeah. less than 15 seconds, really. Very painless. Yes. So anyway, thanks to everybody who's already done it. And if you haven't, please stop on by the website and check that out. Tonight, we're not really going to do a long cold open because we've got a lot of material to cover. So let's get to it. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. There is a lot more to the true story of Oak Island, and someday it will be told in full. Reginald Harris, former Grand Master and Grand Historian, Nova Scotia Masons. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the Oak Island Money Pit. Okay, so jumping back into the fray here on Oak Island, I want to just quickly recap what we covered in part one for those people that aren't binge listening to our show, which apparently some people do. And and thank you for doing that. Yes, thank you very much. Taking several hours out of your weekend. Yes, but if you're coming to this one and you don't remember what we said in part one, just quickly, we discussed how the money pit was originally discovered and what happened during the first hundred years of exploration of it. It's uh, too much to recap here, but uh, I would honestly, if you haven't heard that part yet, I would go back and listen to that before you pick up here, uh, because everything leading up to this is very significant as it relates to the story going forward. That said, before we go too far tonight, one of the things that we want to do is do a little bibliography, and we're going to have links to these books on our website. If you're really into this story, which I was, I mean, I've been into it since I was in college. And you oh, wanna, yeah, me, you, me before. Well, you know what? I think I, – I was thinking about this, and I couldn't remember exactly where I heard it as a kid. But it may have been that Reader's Digest article that inspired Dan Blankenship and also Rick Lagina. The current yeah, searchers. From the History Channel show. Yeah. And a few other folks. What I remembered as a kid is that this sounds impossible. What do you mean it keeps going on? And of yeah. course, I wanted to know what's at the bottom of this thing. Yeah, and I, I even tried to write a screenplay about it in college oh, and on a screenplay yeah. class. Had a really great teacher, actually. And 
I sort of I got in trouble because I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't think what to put down there yeah, right. that, would that would rival be, yeah you know and that wouldn't seem cheesy. Well, you know? uh, yeah, but you have uh, you know National Treasure turned into a, an exciting movie. They hit on some things: the Masonic angle, this and that, the founding fathers. All that plays into our our story tonight. Yes. Uh, in a way, but you know, of course, it's very Hollywood. Like, yes. We're steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it, yeah, it makes it kind well, of. Can we uh, just get through one episode without you doing an impression? We've gone through a lot of it. You know, go ahead and back that up. Go ahead and take that out, please. No, because no, no, I'll do some. I'm leaving. No, it now. no, no, no. All right, let's let's <laughs> let's cite, gold, baby. Let's cite our books. Right. We we pulled very heavily from some books that are just really amazing about Oak Island. One of them is called The Secret Treasure of Oak Island: The Amazing True Story of a Centuries-Old Treasure Hunt, and that one is by. Darcy O'Connor, who has famously been involved with every iteration of the project he could be as long as he's been alive. Yeah, he's he's a Montreal-based journalist, I think. Yes. And, oh, you know what? If you want to see him, he's in the uh, In Search of episode that's on YouTube. Oh, yeah. We posted a link to that with part yeah, one. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's on there. You can see him as a young man. And, and, and Yeah, and that like, was the 70s, people. Yeah. That's how long he's been checking this out. But this is the pull of this story. There's so many of these people have found out about it early on in their lives or from their 20s on into their 50s and stuck with it. And some never gave up on it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So it's, it's, it's drawn people uh, into it for the rest of their lives. And what's the other book we've been... You uh... The one that I first read that kind of rekindled the story for me and got me really interested again uh, is called Oak Island Secrets by Mark Finnan. And he is a uh, he's a journalist as well. He's done some uh, screenwriting. He's done some a little bit of acting. He's done a little bit of journalism. He's done many different kinds of jobs. But he was also brought into this story by a chance visit out to the area, and people started talking about it. And that's all it took. He and just got sucked in. Y- and yeah, you've been uh, you've been corresponding with him this past week or two, haven't you? I found an email address for him. Didn't know if it worked, but just thought I'd send. You know, it kind of reminded me of uh, connections and. Collections. Oh, connections and you send, yeah. a, you know, you send collections and connections. There we go. You, yeah, it's a few episodes ago. You send a letter out into the ether, and you don't know what's going to come back. But he was gracious enough to to write me back. Just answered a couple of questions that uh, very detailed, know, very was, detailed, yeah. and and of course uh, it, he covered it more also in the later parts of the book. I hadn't got to, so you feel a little embarrassed about that. Uh, but sure. uh, but no, he he was very kind of him, very detailed, and he is definitely one of the authorities. Uh, has interviewed a lot of the folks that were still alive at the time and and uh, still kicking. I just and I also like the way he wrote it. It's not just a bunch of dry facts. It really gets you into the story. Yes. So Oak Island Secrets and also The Secret Treasure of Oak Island, two really great books. If you want to dive into this stuff yourself. Okay. So when we left off last time, it wasn't quite the first hundred years. It was the first like seventy five or eighty. We, we, we I think like, we stopped around eighteen sixty seven. Yes, eighteen sixty seven. Before we get back into it, though, there was a couple of things that you wanted to highlight about yeah, from just, part one, right? Yes, I just want to uh, give a couple of bullet points here because I They're think... They're really significant Yeah, finds, these are, yeah. because these are important and uh, there's a, a find that's coming up we haven't talked about yet, but it's similar to what has already been found in 1849 and I just want to make a differentiation because these are the two big finds so far directly in the money pit. Right. So here we go. In 1849, this is when they start first using a pod auger, which is just a, it's like a, imagine a large drill bit that I think has a hollow end on it that can bring up some stuff like coring samples. And so here in 1849, the Truro Company finds spruce platforms they drill into. Okay, this is something that's not just dirt or clay or coconut fiber even. 
this is solid wood here, you know, picking up at the 98-foot level. So that's where the other folks left off. If you remember, they poked it with an iron bar, heard a solid thud, came back the next day, flooded. Yes. So now they're back down there, and uh, they drill through what appears to be a six-inch thick platform of spruce. Then the auger drops down about a foot, then comes in contact with four inches of oak, solid oak, and then metal in loose pieces. Which, to explain that, they're going in blind here. They're just poking around. But these guys know what different things sound like. Yes, so feel it, like. Yes. So yeah. when it's rattling around, or it hits something solid, or it feels like wood or mud, they're experienced enough to know what these things sound like. Except, of course, they can't. They didn't bring anything up. They, they can just hear this thing rattling around, which sounds like it's hitting loose metal. Yes. Then they go down, and that lasts for about 22 inches. Then they go down and hit another 8-inch section of wood. And they think here that this is the bottom of the first chest and maybe the top of the second chest. Right. And then again, 22 inches of loose metal, 4 inches of oak, and then another 6 inches of spruce. What we're trying to make a picture here is that it sounds now like there's two chests. On top of each other. On top of each other that they have poked through because they can tell that that's what it sounds like. And thus, by the way, begins the destruction of valuable artifacts. Yeah, this is... I mean, look, (laughs) I, I see it both ways because... You know, these guys, what are they, well, let's wait around another 150 years for modern technology to come around. Like, no, these guys, they, they haven't figured out the clues that they've been seeing. The beach stones that had the strange markings on them, the 90-foot stone, as it's called, with all that strange symbols on that. So they're not going to wait around to figure this out. And now they got the problem of water. So they're just going at it. Yeah. And, they're, and of they're course, which, a little frantically. No, and, it's, and it's, it is horrible because, yeah, whatever's down there is being destroyed yeah. in, the, in the name of finding it. Okay, so then that that was a big find in 1849. Another thing they find are three gold chain links, which look at the time they look like they were from a military uniform epaulette, which is the uh, you've probably seen them in old like Civil War uniforms. They're they're hanging down, but there's a there's a bit of chain that's gold as, as decorative on the shoulders. And this so, is and by the way, to date, this is the only possibly precious metal, although it was never tested, right? <laughs> it was, uh, I think at the time, that's what they, they determined. I mean, gold like, is they fairly it also easy. could have come from a pocket watch or something like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It was just small gold chain links. Yes. But again, what, is it, what does it do? It's enough to fuel people on to think like, well, there, there's gold a little bit. <laughs> there's so, well, and you know, something, there's, somebody, there's something down there. O'Connor said at the end of his book, there was speculation that the guy who found the gold chain links heard one of the major shareholders or investors at the top of the pit say, if we don't find something by the end of the week, ah, we're shutting down. There you go. So you got to wonder, you know, it's yeah. a little bit suspect. Right. It's so, the only thing, <laughs> it's, only, it's the only time the word gold is applied to anything that's come up from the pit to date, right? Well, a little later on, William Chapel claims to have found a little bit of gold on the auger uh, drill bit, but didn't say anything either. So again, this is another thing that plays out. People are playing this close to the vest. This yeah. could be the biggest treasure find ever. Or we just drilled a hole through the grail. Yeah. <laughs> but Although it's not made we'll of get, gold. It's probably a wooden cup or something. Well, the cup of a carpenter. Yeah. Anyway. But, yeah. But they, I digress. Yeah. They keep finding things. And uh, and again, Pitt Blotto finds something that he thinks is interesting enough that he puts it in his pocket and doesn't share it. Yeah. Never shared it with anyone. And yeah. in fact, tried to take over the island. <laughs> the yeah. He came back. and, and, uh, and, and yeah. uh, Also a mason, right? Mr. Pitt Blotto. 
Yes, I, got a lot of I believe so. Masons. Yeah, mostly they're doing the you know mostly they're they're trying to do the right thing. Right. Some are trying to do it for their own benefit, right. a little bit more than for history. So now you're coming to the last bit of our uh, a little bit here. Yeah. Recap. So here we go. 1850 Truro finds a flooding system at Smith's Cove, and they dig a they dig a pit to a depth of 118 feet, and then dig a three foot by four foot tunnel towards the pit. But guess what? The treasure platform collapses and the chests fall to the bottom. And they think they get sucked into one of the other tunnels they've been building because they're just gone. Right. Yeah, they can't find them anywhere. But one thing they did find as this connecting tunnel collapses and water is now rushing through there, a worker does find a dish-shaped piece of yellow painted wood that landed at his feet. Right. So again, more artifacts are being found that just don't point to something being a natural sinkhole or, you know... There's obviously evidence of a very cleverly engineered and man-made contraption, shall we say at this point. Sophisticated. Very, very sophisticated. You know what? It's like a, I thought I thought about it, and I keep coming back to the chess yeah. analogy, but this is like playing an invisible grandmaster. <laughs> that has, you know, whatever you well, think. You know what it, there's moves ahead of you you're not, you don't know about yet. Yes. Yeah. And, and no one's been able to match wits with him. So yet, That's the problem. And you know what it is. It's, and it's, I so, don't mean to be sexist. It could have been a woman. <laughs> I'm just saying the engineer who put yeah. it in place, whoever came up with it, Nobody has been able to match wits with this No, person. and the way they're going at it is instead of trying to outdo their opponent by clever moves, they're drilling up through the table and the chessboard trying to suck the chess piece down through the bottom. Yeah, the whole That's th- kind of what they're – they're trying to muscle it out because that's the only way they know how at this point. Yes. After 1867, there was another period of not a whole lot going on for about 25 years, except for the story was growing and growing. People are researching and looking into it, but there's not a lot actually happening. And then something really interesting happens. Forrest, and maybe you can do this. Before we get to um, Sophia Seller's story, uh, maybe you can refresh our our listeners' memories on Anthony Graves. Yeah, Anthony Graves is interesting because he's one of the few individuals here in the story who comes to own, I think, either most or all of the island. And yes, what, early on, he he bought from originally from John Smith, who was one of the original discoverers. Yeah, right? well, what happened in 1853, John Smith, now he's getting up there in age, so he deeds his property to his two sons, at least the east, uh, his property on the east end of the island. Which is where the pit is. Absolutely. Right. And and because uh, his sons weren't that interested in looking for treasure or, you know, they're probably just farming it. A lot of most of the folks that were on the island just were doing that. They ended up selling their lots to Henry Stevens four years later. And he, in turn, sells it to Anthony Graves. And then uh, by 1863 or so, uh, he built himself a house and a farm and, uh, and I think a barn there. He's near Jodry's Cove. I think that's how you... <laughs> Yes, his house is in Jodry's Cove. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He's so one he's, of the, he's one of the first guys to have a lot of land on the island. Yeah. He's got a good chunk of it on the east end there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's just farming. But one interesting thing, though, yeah, but is he part was of, interested. He was interested. Oh, well, he, you know, maybe not in the money pit, but, you know, there was uh, rumors going around that he was going into town and buying things on the mainland with Spanish coins. That's right. And which is pretty interesting because that was kind of a known thing, I think, at the time. And after his death, they found a Spanish coin on his property, and I think it was dated Near around the foundation of his house. Right. And I think one of the coins was dated 1785. And then he also found some evidence that he'd been doing a little digging of his own. So he was he was going around. Yeah, and here, here's something. Gonna, around. He's going to come up again. He's a fascinating character. But one of the things that I'll say about all the different theories about what why would he sell this or why would his sons sell the land? It's like you say, well, they're not interested. It's just farming or whatever. Or maybe they knew their dad had already found whatever was there. <laughs> whatever, was, whatever was already there. Now, 
that, on his property. That's right. And yeah. think about this. Let's say you own you own land on an island that supposedly has treasure hidden on it. If you find the treasure or you're faced with the possibility of profiting from other people coming looking for it. Yeah. You first of all, you don't say you found the treasure. You don't want to pay taxes on it. You don't want to tell anybody about it. Secondly, if people think it's still there, your land is worth a lot more than it would be. Right. Right. So there there may be other reasons they were like, "Yeah, you, we will sell it." Yeah. Because maybe dad was, you know, dad already got everything. Well, you know, it fits in with another theory that I have about the whole operation in general from the beginning of time to the present day is that it wasn't just one group that was there. I believe personally that there were several different groups from different nationalities and causes and time periods that probably had visited the island and may not have buried anything there. There's another little story we're going to get to about finding some gold on there, not associated with a muddy pit. So there's a lot of little treasures and surprises on this island. Yes. So Anthony had a lot of descendants. One of them uh, was his oldest daughter. Her name was Sophia Sellers. That's her married name. And Sophia farmed the island herself, her and her, um, I guess her husband, I don't know. I don't, there wasn't much mention of him, but no, I, I don't think I, I she th- was doing it alone. I think, though, that she was out running the oxen herself. Yeah, that's the what the story yeah. is, that she was running the oxen and she was at the, on the east end of the island, not far from where the pit had been discovered, on a pretty much a neighboring lot, like right next to it. I think it was like lot 19 or 20 or something like that, but it, it's irrelevant because you listeners have no idea how the lots are laid out. So <laughs> I would have to look also into too much minutia here. But anyway, she was plowing a field one day with these two oxen on her land, which used to be Anthony Graves's land. And the oxen started to stumble and fall and she fell and they fell into a giant sinkhole. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And this hole was six feet by eight feet by 10 feet deep, 10 feet deep. Yeah. All right. And she, so they're all down and she's like trying to get the oxen out. She gets out. She actually didn't think much about it other than, okay, well, you know, this sucks. My field's got a hole in it. She wasn't connecting it necessarily to the money pit, but the story grew about this hole and it eventually became known as the cave-in pit and it has expanded. It's still there today. It's nearly 75 feet or so across and thought to be a hundred feet deep now. Oh, yeah. And it's overgrown. Like when you can actually see it on Google Earth or Google Maps, uh, it looks just kind of like a little pond or something. There's trees right on the edge. Like you wouldn't know that that was how it was created. Now, it's going to come up again later because future companies, uh, future excavation companies theorized that the reason that it caved in was because it was over – the intakes for the for the drains that were coming in from Smith's Cove that were flooding the tunnel and that somehow there had been a collapse related to that. Well, they think it may have been an old man-made air shaft because think about it. I mean, Oh, that's right. That's th- right. Let's, you're curious. You brought this up in uh, part one here. If you're d- actually digging a two-foot by four-foot tunnel that you can't even stand up in, remember you saying yeah. that, <sighs> from all the way from the cove, Gives from Smith's Cove, <laughs> and, yeah. and you're, di- you're going down 22 degrees, which, which is what they think the angle was. Uh, into the main pit, and then filling it up with beach boulders about the size of your head or twice the size of your head, it's been described, uh, so that the dirt doesn't collapse in on the tunnel, leaving it still effective. The workers down there are going to need air, fresh air, to keep working and digging. Yeah, and, and that that's a mark of engineering sophistication. It's not just a tunnel 
Like if I was building it, I'm going to build a tunnel, the water will come yeah. through, it'll be a tunnel, the water will come through. Yeah. These people were like, well, this needs to be here 100 years or 200 years. <laughs> or more, yeah. Yes, yeah, so we want it. We want the water can pass through these rocks and the rocks can help hold it together. So they went to the trouble to fill it with these giant boulders, like Forrest was saying. Anyway, so an air shaft. They, they think it may have been an air shaft because it was right in line between the money pit and Smith's Cove where they think the water was coming in from. Right. It's it's almost on a straight line. Not quite. It's a little bit off. But yeah, so it's air shaft. The other th- there's also speculation that it might have been an access point for blocking the yeah. flood tunnel if you if you were the designer and you wanted to come back and retrieve things without the t- without flooding. Yeah, cuz remember, they have to dig the pit first to make this thing work and then put the booby trap in because if you do that the other way around, you could possibly flood yourself exactly. <laughs> while you're doing exactly. it. Yeah, and they, it was very dangerous all the way around to begin with. So yeah, I think it's almost a sure thing that people died during the construction of this project. Well, we might see some evidence of that yeah. in the seventies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, Sophia fell into this hole with her oxen, which is kind of crazy. But you know, oh, you know what I was going to say? That happens quite a bit with ar- archaeological discoveries. An animal, somebody's animal. Uh, I believe so, uh, a couple of things in Egypt were found that way. I was watching a special, and uh, Zawi Hawass, who's the uh, he retired. Now. Oh yeah, that guy's. But he was explaining how the, the guy with the hat. <laughs> Did they all have hats? Yeah. Let's just get that. Yeah, up. but they all the, have hats. The master of antiquities for Egypt. Yeah, he was for a while, and yeah. he's a little bit controversial because he's not really been forthcoming with everything. You know, they, they won't found, open the chamber at well, the Sphinx's was, feet, yeah. right? There's yeah, this chain see. supposed to. What is supposed to be in that chamber? All the knowledge of the ages. uh, Part of it, yeah. Perhaps the Atlanteans. It's supposed to be a storehouse. Is that really how you say that word? Atlanteans? Atlanteans? I say Atlanteans. You probably say aluminium, though, like a... I do not say aluminium. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, fine. Yeah. Anyway, they've confirmed that there's a room... Well, apparently with ground-penetrating radar, there is a hollow space, which I think may have been described by Edgar Cayce... Yeah, a and they haven't ago. opened. They've known this for years. No, and because in there. Well, or they're doing it and not telling us one or yes, the other. Yes, it could be one of the one of the reasons is that they think it may just totally upset all that we know about Egyptian ancient history. All right, There's that's for another episode. There you go. All Whole right, thing. There's a couple of other things they found in this around this time period, and and uh, just proves that other people have been here quite earlier. And they think around 1885, a bosun's whistle of ancient design. It was like bone or ivory or something carved is found near the beach area below high tide. And also they find a copper coin, kind of, I think kind of heavy, about one and a half ounces, dated uh, 1713 or possibly 1317, which I, I found to be an odd note here. In the, in the dialogue. It's kind of a dyslexic, but yeah, uh, yeah but an old coin predating though the McGinnis boys. Discovery. Yeah, discovery in 1795. Right. All right. So now we're in the 1890s and along comes one of the most amazing guys to be involved in the project. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fred Blair. Yes. Now, the cool thing about Blair was he was a very methodical man, and I, I really like his approach. I honestly feel like if we had ever had a shot of doing this, he started out the way we would have done it. He oh, just went, heavily researched. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. went to everyone who was still alive. He talked to everybody. He compiled all the information he could before he even really started to take his first steps, which is pretty amazing. In 1893, he forms the Oak Island Treasure Company, and their plan – and this is the plan that I guess he's come up with, is to block the main flood tunnel. When we talked about Smith's Cove and the five-fingered tunnels all coming to convergent point and maybe the cave-in pit being above or whatever, they think they can go and find a way to block the flood tunnel 
then they'll not have to worry about trying to pump the ocean out of the pit. Well, that's been their main nemesis all along and will continue to be for the rest of the for the rest of history. But if they can do that, then at least they can get down and start digging because then it's not that hard. See, the, the thing is, with water like that coming in with such pressure from the tide, right? It's it's things are eroding. There's rocks and boulders flying around. It's it's kind of dangerous and uh, it makes it inaccessible. Right. So anyway, they're doing a lot of work. One of the things that they did was they dug a new shaft thirty feet east of the money pit. The cave in pit was about three hundred feet east of the money pit. So they're going about 30 feet east to do this shaft. And by the way, we want to just quickly mention some of the terminology that we use. If we use casing or cribbing or I, – I shouldn't have said that I was going to explain this because I have no idea how to <laughs> – cribbing. <laughs> it's All right, just, cribbing. It's just wooden uh, – yeah. Well, cribbing is like – you know, that's the wood that you see in all the movies when everybody's in an old mine. And that's what you're hanging your own uh, miner's yeah, lamp that's, that's cribbing. Yeah. Casing is – is uh, when you're in a vertical shaft, if you put like a, a metal pipe or something to protect the shaft? No. Yeah. Or when you're yeah. – it's also – it also describes the pipe that's around a drill, like if you do a boring or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an outer the layer that's protective because uh, this dirt is – will conti- as you're working in there too, it's continually kind of falling off the walls and, you know, yes. it could kill somebody. Yeah, so and it can wanna, cave in, especially if it's yeah. wet. And right. So – oh, and that's the other thing. There's a lot of erosion. I mean, they get yeah. – you know, Nova Scotia gets a lot of heavy rain, a lot of erosion, bad weather in the winter. Yes. Often they would come back after the winter and things are totally eroded, you know. Yes. So – it's, it's reinforcement. In, yeah. Yes, exactly. So anyway, they, they, they drill this new pit 30 feet east of the shaft. It floods at 43 feet. So they, they abandon that one. They go back to the original money pit, and they're still having flooding problems. So now they're bringing in a steam pump, which actually is able to drain the money pit down to 97 feet. Okay? So it's, it's during this time, too, that actually in, in March of 1897 – we have our second death. Uh, this gentleman named Maynard Kaiser is being lifted out, and the rope that he's coming up on falls off the pulley, and he falls to his death. Well, they, yeah, they think he was trying to get, hitch a ride up to the top. Again, it's a long, it's a lot yeah. of climbing. It's a long ways down on one of the bailing casks. And oh, he, I didn't know that part. Okay. Well, that's that's what I'd read. He, yeah, they think that he was trying to, you know, basically take a little bit of a shortcut. I might try it too. Yeah, but the, his extra weight caused the rope to slip off the pulley, and he fell down a long ways and yeah. died. Yeah. So, and by the way, he was from Gold River, which is where they think the original flagstone was from. Yeah, he's a local. Just a couple miles away. But there was a problem with Maynard's death, or Mr. Kaiser's death, I should say. It spooked everybody. Like, although especially the local guys, yeah, yeah, they were like, okay, we're we don't want to work on this anymore. This pit is going to kill everybody, you know. And getting back to the rumor, seven must die. You know, we're now on number two, and they're probably all thinking they're the next five. So. It took some convincing to get them to come back to work, and they did come back to work, and they they did several months of work, and this is again with Fred Blair, who was thoroughly researched, but still, things can go wrong. They did several months of work only to find that they were in the wrong pit. They thought they were in the money pit, (laughs) and they were completely out of position. So this is the kind of stuff that's going on. Eventually, the Oak Island Treasure Company actually discovers the Smith's Cove flood tunnel. And the water that's flooding through it is just too much to stop. So what they do is they create five big holes down to 90 feet over by the flood tunnel, and they jam them all up with dynamite. Yeah, I think just over 150 pounds of explosives were used just on the center shaft. And I think these shafts are about five inches wide, so it's enough to drop down a few sticks of dynamite. Yeah. yeah. uh, But that's their idea. Blow it up, get it to settle. And that should stop the water. Yes, and here we are again blowing things up. It, it, 
again, well, I mean, at least you're, you're, away, you gotta at least you're do, away from the main pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah away from the yeah. main pit. Okay, so anyway, right. so they do this. They blow it up, and both the money pit and the cave-in pit foamed a lot from these oh, explosions. Yeah. The water and, at the 30-foot level uh, kind of boiled up and, and, and foamed. Yeah, and there was oil in it from the dynamite. They could see that it definitely had made a connection. So they thought, okay, we're good here. So... They go now down to 90 feet, and they set a platform up. They put a platform back in. This is sort of one of the ironies. Like, when you want to bore down and get information, you have to put something in to base your equipment on. So, you know, you're removing, you're removing, removing, now you're putting something back. So you put something – by the way, and this comes up, these platforms, when there's a collapse or a cave-in or whatever, a lot of times they're coming across older boring platforms that have sunk down into all the debris. Yeah, that's the other know, thing about this story. This thing's accumulating junk. Yeah. Well, this is uh, – yeah, this would, is what I would call the second major discovery yes. in the pit itself of what's being down there. This, and this, was, this is kind of a big one. At around 153 to 154 feet, the drill goes through about seven inches of what seemed to be cement and then through about five inches of oak. And then the then the auger drops a couple of inches and came to rest embedded in again loose pieces of metal is what they hear knocking around on the drill bit there. And they keep going down seven feet, and again they hit five inches of wood and another seven inches of concrete. Now, so you gotta picture this. What you're drilling into is a wooden box that's encased in cement. And the cement has been tested. Yes, uh, it's been they, shown to be man-made. And they believe that it's a crude form. You know, but that's not anything unusual. The Romans had crude forms of cement that they were using. So it, the idea has been around a long time. Yes. Uh, but obviously, this is not something that just naturally was formed in the bottom of this pit. Below these two chests that were previously found. Right. And then, and then after that, below that, they encountered iron that they could not get through. Yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. Well, they hit uh, they hit eleven feet of blue puddled clay. Right. And then at one hundred and seventy one feet, the drill strikes iron that they can't get through. So again, that's a little weird. That, right. <laughs> that would be de- that far down there. Now I had this is an out there theory, but a theory that I had uh, on this first discovery on this box and also the iron that's now under it was that maybe it was a false treasure. Designed oh, yeah. to make yeah. to make people, oh, we've got it, we've discovered, and they leave. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah. no, if you go past that and you hit the iron, it's like, oh, that's a decoy. Maybe. Just Maybe something, so. you know, No, I, I wouldn't often, put it past these people. No, and I've often know? thought that, and it, well, it's not just me. Another big theory direction is that this is all just a decoy. and The whole pit itself. Yes, for those that are smart enough or have the sacred knowledge to figure out the clues, there's an easy way to get to it. Right. Yeah. Right. Not not specifically what's there in the pit. It may be at a whole other location. But good luck wasting your time and money on this thing. Yeah, and years, and 220 <laughs> years. But right. And also in 1867, that's when they were actually, they had gone to see a doctor, oh. some of the stuff they brought up. You know what, I think he was part of the uh, the team of investors. The orders were to bring everything that the drill had brought up, and they hadn't classified it yet. That's just a matter of separating out the bigger chunks. They wanted to see everything. Yes. And so the doctor, well, he had a microscope, or he had a very strong magnifying glass uh, apparatus. Well, and one of the specimens that they had, was this little ball, right? And he yeah. he starts rolling it around in his fingers, and he's like, wait a minute. And he, and he opens it up. This is another major discovery. As he's unfolding this little piece of paper, it seems to have writing on it. Yes, and uh, all they can make out 
is that it's either the letters V and I, or maybe W and I, written in old script. Right. Uh, but the, again, the parchment was tested and uh, by Harvard University specialists, and they determined that it was parchment paper and written with a quill pen with India ink. Right. And did they yeah. date that? Uh, I don't think it... Uh, no, I don't think it had ever been carbon... Well, they didn't have carbon dating back then. I think it's been lost to time, but it's it's a very small fragment about the size of a dime. So you're talking about a t- you know tiny piece of paper here. Yeah, very small. So in, anyway, after this, there's there's more shafts or more shafts are dug. They flood. That happens over and over. In 1898, they did the first dye test, which. So what they're doing with these dye tests, and actually, if you've been watching the show on the Discovery Channel, they actually did this again. Uh, so that would be the third time a dye test has been done. But with this dye test... This one worked, I think. Yeah, yeah. this is pretty amazing. They they were like, if we put this dye down in the pit, we should be able to find it where it's coming out when the tide's retreating, like low tide. And then we'll know where the flood tunnels start. And we can go and, and make sure that, that we get them that we get them for sure. So they put the dye down into the pit and it comes out in Smith's Cove as expected. But then big surprise, it comes out on the other side of the island, on the south side of the island in the other cove. So now they think there's two flood tunnels. Right. There's two tunnels. At different levels. On opposite sides <laughs> of the opposite island. Opposite sides. Yeah. Again, this, this, this design gets more clever and ingenious and diabolical. Exactly. The further you get into it. Oh, I was going to say, you know, another thing that, that was found here, and again, you were talking earlier about precious metals. Apparently, William Chapel, who was one of the, uh, the investment team or one of the directors, uh, found traces of gold sediment that he claims were on the auger after drilling into the money pit, but never told anybody until many years later. And I think it was Hedden that he, because he was still alive when uh, when Hedden, who right. uh, Gilbert Hedden, we're going to get to, get to him. Yeah. But he never revealed that to anybody. Again, so many people are these old guys are playing it so close to the vest. They don't yeah. want to reveal anything because. But they, what kept him going is that each one who did was absolutely sure of a tremendous treasure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. So now it's uh, in 1900. I think it was 1900, rough in somewhere in that period. Frederick Blair's company, the Oak Island Treasure Company, folds. But Blair is he's in this for life, and he's not he's not leaving his personal endeavor and his own company is folded. He is continuing to lease the land from Sophia Sellers, who was Anthony Graves' daughter, who is now getting up there as well. It, it takes him a while to get somebody to come in and and go to work. In 1909, he attracts. Um, a company and a guy who seems like he's going to be well-funded, because that's the other thing Blair's doing is vetting everybody. And there's a lot of crazies. Crazies are coming. And they're saying, oh, I've got this thing. There was some guy that tried to come in with the pet freezing uh, process uh, uh, or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was like, it was all, it's all just people who are trying to capitalize on the idea of the treasure. They raise money and then they run off. They, yeah. they don't have any intention of, you know, finding it. They're going to go down in the pit with some crazy invention or, or maybe not. Everybody believes they genuinely have the answer. Yes, or their answer is to raise a ton of money and run away. Yeah. So he's vetting these people. So he's got this guy, Henry Bodwin, right? B-O-W-D-O-I. I would say Bodwin. Yeah, I sure. don't know how to say his yeah. name, but... Uh, and this guy is an adventurer, and he's really cocky. Like he's 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 a big personality, and he sort of reminds me of the. Um, he's another captain, the guy in the yeah. blimp in uh, in Up. What Ed Asner? You mean the yeah yeah, yeah that yeah, character? Yeah, yeah. No, no, not Ed Asner. The no, guy in the, the bad guy. Oh the adventurer. Yes. Oh, yeah. that's uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, Bodwin's prospectus actually said, "With modern methods and machinery, the recovery of the treasure is easy." 
ridiculously easy. Yeah. That's what he said in his perspective, <laughs> trying to get investors right. in. So right. he was a flowery speaker. He had a lot of bravado. And I think he had an – I think it was him. He had the offices in Manhattan. Yes. Uh, yeah. Another and, New York engineer. Yeah, yeah. And he was going to use the Bowdoin Airlock Caisson, which Ooh, a Caisson yeah. is like a chamber – that uses a positive air pressure to keep water out. And yeah. he's like, I'm going to put this down in there. It's going to be a piece of cake. So yeah. so you have some of the old players coming back in, which is interesting. So you have, in addition to Blair, you have uh, Captain Welling. He's a board director. And you've got Treasurer L.H. Andrews. And this is another interesting name, G.D. Mosher. If you remember from the part one, because I've been, I've been making notes on this one, yeah. he was the guy who provided the pump. Back oh, right, to the, right. uh, I believe, the Onslow Company way back when, it, the pump blows up, you know, or just, yeah. it, it, it blows up. This is another, I don't know if they're related, I couldn't find any any relation, but it's another guy named Mosher around this time, and again, there seems to be a lot of uh, relatives and yeah. descendants working well, on this thing. Small towns and, you know. Now, here's a little side note, I'll get this out of the way, just because I wanted to make sure that we mentioned it. So, Mr. Mosher appears in a newspaper article, likely from Halifax. And he says about 1925, his grandmother showed him a wooden trunk containing about 25 heavy canvas white bags filled with gold. Wait, wait, wait. Who's his grandmother? Well, his grandmother was Lucy Vaughn, a relative of Anthony Vaughn, one of the original diggers in 1795. One of the original three boys. Yes. And the trunk was said to have come from Oak Island, I guess as part of family lore. Now, at some point, Uncle Edward Vaughn took the trunk and disappeared. Bailed on his family. Yeah, leaving his property, business, wife, family, everybody, because he's, got a, he's now got a trunk full of gold. Nice guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it shows you that, obviously, there's little bits of treasure here and there all over the place. That's fascinating. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's Mr. Mosher. All right. So anyway, and even though Bowdoin, Bowdoin, sorry. Bowdoin. Bowdoin. Bowdoin, I would say, yes. <laughs> even, even though Bowdoin had all this bravado and his offices in Manhattan and uh, he was a big talker and everything, he still had a hard time raising money, uh, which I think is a sign to like people were not buying, it, especially in New York. Pretty investors were pretty sophisticated at that point, and people are thinking twice. I don't care what you're saying. This is a wild goose chase. But he did get some people. He got enough people to do a little bit of work, and he got a little bit of the money, not as much as he wanted. One of the most famous participants in Bowdoin's company was FDR. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was 27 years old. Yeah, he was a, a young lawyer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and he actually went to the island during well, that. So the one of the only time he'd actually been to the it's, island. It's a good summer vacation. Yeah, he he had family that had land near there, so he had, he knew the area pretty well. And also, he's a mason. He was a mason already at that yes, age? Yes, I believe. Wow. Well, no, you can join when you're a young man. And, yeah. you know, people did more stuff earlier on than, than we seem to, to do today. But anyway, so they dynamited the original pit. That yeah. was one of, this is, by the way, this guy is not... Not subtle. Unfortunately, <laughs> For an engineer, too. Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah. he's not going to be the worst one. We got that guy's coming up. But uh, he's <laughs> okay. dynamiting yeah. the pit. He drilled 28 boreholes, and boreholes are like uh, small test, holes. Ho- test yeah, holes. Yeah, so you can yeah. bring up core samples and sort of see what's, what's going on. Found all the same stuff everybody else did. Putty, gravel, clay, sand, all the stuff runs out of money. He had wanted to raise ten or $15,000 or something. I can't remember, twenty. He only raised five, And he, he burned through it super quick. And when he quit, he quit with extreme prejudice. He totally went full on jerk ball. All right. I mean, because <laughs> well, yeah. he, he actually yeah. was writing articles into uh, the Colliers. He sent an article yes, in. Yes, in saying, August. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you have the information on that? Well, he, he just... The whole he, thing is a hoax. Yeah, he just... Look, he's... Because he didn't find anything, and he didn't want to look like a failure. So in August 18th, I think, Collier's Magazine publishes an article where he called, it's a hoax, there's nothing there, the, you know, the, the tunnel and the treasure never existed. 
Right. You know, it was by the way, the title of that article, that one, one of many times that I think it said the Oak Island mystery is solved. By the way, that's been said. About, that's been said about a thousand times. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Nowadays, it's clickbait. They they haven't solved anything. It's just somebody's opinion that has slapped together a misspelled YouTube video that's five minutes long. Yeah. There's so many. There's the Baghdad battery. There's the boat that fell down a hole. We'll oh, get to those later. Boy. Yeah. Yeah. So many. <laughs> anyway, so, so many. other companies are trying to get funding now. Bodwin is out. Scammers are still coming along. And then finally, in 1931, William Chapel returns. And he had left to go work his family's business, uh, which was lumber, and had apparently made a lot of money. The problem with what Bodwin had done with the dynamiting was that nobody was actually really sure where the money pit was anymore. <laughs> oh, no. that's And that you know what? That happens to this day. They can't find – they're not totally sure where the original one was. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was obviously no GPS back then. You well, it's know, no it's leave, like, no trace. I'll tell you that. Everyone's just stomping around. And this is the problem afterwards with other crews is that they then have to clear the whole pit and remove all the junk that has fallen down there and is now rotting. Exactly. Metal, garbage – I mean, you know, some tools, you know, so now they have to clear all that out, plus all the other little tunnels that everybody has been digging laterally yes, between their other holes. And to add to all of this, the flood tunnels are flowing six to 800 gallons per minute with the tide coming in and out. Any debris that's down there is being pushed all over the place. Yeah, so they're not sure where these trunks were that fell down into a connecting tunnel. Right. They don't know what happened to them. Right. So now Blair is trying to figure out what to do next. In 1931, Sophia Sellers dies. Now, she has – she was Anthony Gray's eldest daughter, right? She has 12 heirs. Uh, there's grandchildren and uh, I think some two siblings and grandchildren or something like that. They are all money hungry. They don't want to lease it anymore. They want to sell it. They're trying to get Blair to buy it, and he says it's ridiculous. So – there's these problems with, you know, and this is an ongoing thing. Who has a treasure trove license and who has the rights to the land or owns the land? Those are two different things, believe it or not. If you have a treasure trove license, you can go onto someone else's land and look for treasure. That was a later ruling, right? Yeah, yeah that was a later right. ruling. Mm-hmm. Initially, you could. To make it easier because, you know, some of these guys had political pull. Right. And so now – and oh, by the way, I wanted to just quickly – another book that we uh, referenced, which was a little bit loosey-goosey on some of the facts, <laughs> but it's pretty fascinating. It's yeah. called The Oak Island Enigma by Thomas P. Leary. Kind of a um, booklet. Yeah, yeah, it's a booklet. He actually yeah. self-published it, which I admire that. Oh, that's cool. I self-published yeah. a book myself back in the 90s, and <laughs> um, so I, I feel like he's a kindred spirit. Well, don't – don't please don't get into that. Uh, no, okay. Anyway, I want – I just want to read these three paragraphs from his book really quick since we're passing on into the 1900s here. This is something that happened in 1870, according to his book. This story is littered with this kind of stuff. You think you know everything about Oak Island? I thought I knew it. I didn't know a tenth of it. Here's, here I am quoting the book. In 1870, a stranger appeared in the Mahone Bay area, dark-complected and speaking with an accent. He bought a sloop for $2,500 and hired two local fishermen to sail it. He took the boat 30 miles out to sea to a point south of Halifax. There he took a sight on the sun and set a northwest course back to the mainland. As the sloop approached the shore, he took out an ancient chart and studied it intently. This he kept mostly concealed from the fishermen, but they reported the writing on it was something like Yiddish or script German. The course he set brought him not into Mahone Bay, but St. Margaret's Bay a few miles northeast. He kept this up almost every day until fall and returned to repeat the performance the following spring. Apparently, he never found what he was looking for because he disappeared soon afterward. 
Oh, there you go. Just, That's just a little side one story. One more treasure. <laughs> one, one more possibly connected or unconnected treasure story about the area. Yeah, it's just crazy, all the people that are showing up. And... Well, this is what I, I think it's been so confusing all, throughout the years, is that there could be possible other clues that aren't even related that are being found on the island. And there's other. there could be other treasures, other people from other times, all leaving a marker here, which may be misinterpreted or plowed over. Yes. You know. It's, yes. it's, it's made it all confusing. It has, yeah. So in 1931, there's a couple of other interesting finds that are made. I think this is in what's called the chapel shaft by, by his team there. And I think between 115 and 130 feet in the new shaft, the guys find what's called an anchor fluke. And you probably know that as, as a sailor there. It's, a, yes. it's one of the blades of an anchor, right? Yes, yes. And it's stuck into the side of the tunnel. And then something looking like a 250-year-old axe. Yes. Uh, Acadian axe of the region, a miner's pick, and the remnants of an oil lamp with seal oil in it. Oh, that's right. I yeah. So, there's some, so now more artifacts are being found. That was in the chapel shaft. Yes, I believe so. And then there's one interesting thing, another clue, that I think uh, Captain Welling found when he was with Frederick Blair, that he relates to Mel Chapel, I believe. And this is a triangular... William Chapel's son. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Melbourne is yeah. his full name. Or Melbourne. Well, yeah, yeah so. but they call him, everyone calls us Mel. Yeah. yeah. Mel. I saw but I said it, Melvin. <laughs> Melbourne, yeah. You're thinking of uh, me and Melvin. Yeah. Melvin and me. They find an equilateral set of stones making a triangle, so that, and the sides are, of which are 10 feet long. There's a base to it, and below the base is kind of a half circle. And so what this looks like to a lot of the people at the time is a sextant, right. a sailing navigational device. And if you take the main line that's kind of off the center, it points true north and gets you very close to the money pit on the south shore. Yes, this triangle is going to come up again. They actually weren't really sure what to make of it. No. They, it was discovered and then like a lot of things sort of not paid a lot of attention to for years and years after that. Right. And one more little secret that nobody told anybody about for 31 years. William Chappell then tells Frederick Blair he noticed traces of yellow metal or gold on the drill bit during 1897. And so, again, a little something that somebody's keeping a secret about something possibly very valuable. Traces of gold. Yeah. All right. Well, so now, 1935, Gilbert Hedden comes into the picture. And Another Mason. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Another Mason. And maybe there's a connection there. Yeah. But anyway, he was loaded. His dad had a steel company that was sold to Bethlehem Steel in Pennsylvania. He had a pretty sophisticated knowledge of engineering, but technically, though, he was not an engineer. And he wanted to dig really bad. Yeah, certainly not a mining engineer. Yeah, not a mining engineer. But at the time, Blair could not get the lease for the land from Sophia Seller's kids. Uh, They just would not give it up. They had marked it up and were like, you have to buy it. We're not leasing it anymore. And he was like, these prices are ridiculous. But Hedden, who had all the money and wanted to work with Blair agreed to buy the land from Sophia's kids for $5,000. So they buy all the land that they need to get to the money pit. Now, the original pit is still lost. They're not sure exactly where it is. And Hedden's pretty good about looking around for things. At one point, he finds a rock at Judri's Cove that has a Roman number 2 on it and the letters G-I-N, but it's incomplete. It's clearly been either blown up or separated from other parts of a boulder. They are looking for the rest of the boulder. The The problem was that someone had discovered it earlier with the writing on it, and thinking something would be under it, they dynamited it. Oh, jeez. 
And of course, nobody wrote down what it said. Is it? Uh, yeah. Well, no. It's like does, let's it, just you know, dynamite. It Everything it, is like dynamite. It. It doesn't matter anyway. I, they probably wouldn't have been able to figure it out. This is the thing. Oh, yeah, was that, maybe we could now. Was that discovered by Hedden? Gilbert um, Hedden? Well, he found the rock, but whoever found it the first time and blew it up, I don't think, oh. even think they're sh- they are sure. Okay. It's not. It's a loss to history. Yeah, it, but, you know, because also in 1936, he found what's called the H-Stone, another important kind of a square, obviously... Wait, man- wait, and what year was that? Uh, 1936, oh, in 1936 to, okay. yeah, to 37, sometime around there. He actually walked around the island quite a bit before he started any kind of mechanical workings on there. He basically wanted to find out as much as he could... And, you know, he's experienced with Masonic lore and symbols. So he finds this stone, which has Masonic markings on it. And it's got the Masonic, kind of an H, which is the sign for the creator. Uh uh, A circle with a dot, which I've heard being called a circumpunct. Uh And then the Christian symbol of the cross. And there's pictures of it. We'll actually have one on the website. Pretty interesting. Another clue. Yes. Now, he can't figure it out, but at least he respects that there's some markings here left by earlier peoples. Yes. And I mean, the long and short of it is what's going on on this island. I was thinking about this when when we were doing all this research. Cursory research. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about – it's literally like if you opened up a window – in Times Square, and you threw out a bag of cash onto the ground, what the people on the ground would do to get to the money is what a lot of these treasure hunters are doing. Some of them are very diligent and careful, but a lot of them are just showing up. They're digging. They're blowing things up. They're not being archaeological about their searches. They don't realize the scope of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so everyone is just like, oh, we just – all we got to do is dig deeper with bigger machines and bigger pumps and we're going to find it and it keeps not happening. You bring up an interesting point. I've always thought about this. Why hasn't there been any government or university team doing a scientific archaeological dig on this thing? They don't seem to be interested. It's always been it's always been private parties. I think at this point, I don't know why not prior to now, but at this point, I think cost. I mean, yeah, well, that's right. They don't want to get involved for something that may not uh, turn out to be anything. And it's also incredibly dangerous. I mean, this isn't like an open pit where you're dusting dinosaur bones. (laughs) This is like the risk of death is high. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side that I think about is that if they did find something, they're probably not going to tell anybody. That seems to happen sometimes, too. Yes, that's true. In 1936, Hedden also finds the remains of a structure in Smith's Cove which is like what looks to be like a skidway yeah. for uh, for boats, right? Is it? They think so. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's getting pallets or something down the beach or uh, onloading or offloading boats. And they think it's part of the old coffer dam built by the original diggers. Yeah, it was structures that were built to facilitate the coming and going of ships and equipment and men. Yeah, these are big timbers. These are yeah. uh, 15 inches in diameter, notched every four feet. Some of them have uh, wooden pins in the notches. And then there's Roman numerals carved in the end. So obviously it's kind of a, you know, instructions on how to put this thing together. Right. I think. Yeah. So Hedden is finding a lot of information, but one of the things that's interesting that he comes across is what I call the Mardell map. (laughs) Yeah. This map is amazing. It was in a book by a a man from London. Harold Wilkins. Yes. He had written this book about Captain Kidd. And in this book, there were three maps. One of these maps had some cryptic writing on it, and it looked a little bit like Oak Island. And Hedden became kind of obsessed with the Wilkins map. He was like, what is this? I've got Well, to- he thinks he's found something because this is not a very widely published book. It was kind of hard to find, but it's, it's called Captain Kidd and His Skeleton Island. Right, exactly. It, and it says in the writing in a little box under the map, it says 18 west and by 7 east on rock, 30 southwest, 19 north, tree, 
And then it says seven, seven by eight. by eight by, by four. four. Yes. yes. So he becomes obsessed with this map. He takes these numbers and he starts to try to figure out how the map relates to Oak Island. And in so doing, he goes back to the stone triangle, the sextant triangle. Mm-hmm. And he uses the measurements, the rods on this, the, on this legend from this map in this book about Captain Kidd, and he surveys out a triangle. There are drilled, man-made, drilled right. holes in granite rocks that, that's, you know, that's an old Viking thing yes. uh, for surveying and, and beyond, where you take, you know what it's very much like is Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, where you actually do have stick. a staff, and yeah. then you use that as a sighting device. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so it turns out this triangle, using these figures, perfectly lines up with the drilled rocks, which were a pre existing artifacts on the island and these have not been moved and the money pit and the sextant all of this stuff the information from the william kidd map works for it almost exactly dead on except for one of the figures is a little bit off and they're using rods as a unit of measurement and a rod is a 16.25 feet or something like that it's an old it's an old english unit of measure yes and i I looked it up right yes for surveying and they, they think it was originally based on how long of a pole a kid would have to have a plowboy <laughs> to reach yeah. the lead oxen on it in a team. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So anyway, he's, he becomes convinced this map, I've got to know more about this map. So he reaches out to uh, Wilkins, right? Yes. And he says, I have got, you've got to tell me where you got this map. Where did you, how did you get it? And he's, and Wilkins is like, it's, it's a different, it's in a different place. You're not, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's nowhere near Nova Scotia. It's not worth talking about, but Hedden is obsessed. He's like, no, you don't understand. I laid it out. I found all this stuff on the Island that exactly corresponds to the figures. He's like, I'm coming to see you. And Wilkins is like, no. And he basically hangs up on him more or less. I'm saying figuratively. Oh, well, he's on the phone. Sure. Yeah. He yes. goes to, he goes yeah. to London yeah. and he, yeah, I'm making up the phone call. part. But <laughs> like he goes to London yeah. And he meets up with Wilkins, he sits down with him, and Wilkins is real fidgety. And he's like, and also a little strange. And he's like, okay, so your book, you had the map in there, I'm telling you, it corresponds to Oak Island. I want more information about it. And he's like, well, that's not really a a map. I mean, I saw a map, and then I recreated that one from, from just looking at it. Well, supposedly he based it on three maps, three or four maps he'd seen in the Royal... Uh, archives yes. in the Royal Museum in London, which were real treasure maps. He just kind of <laughs> he amalgamated he, the yeah. information, and then on top of that, the only reason it was in the book was because the publisher was like, "You got to put a treasure map in the oh, book." There you go. Yeah, and it's like, and so Hedden is like, "You got to be kidding me!" It's like, <laughs> it's but my, I found, yeah. but it lines up, and he's like, he's like, "I have to know what inspired you." And Wilkins says, "Well, um, one of the maps that inspired me." was actually the property of this other gentleman who, you know, also lived in England. And he's like, if you want to go look at that original, you know, I don't know, you guys, you could go over there. So the guy goes and meets with Hedden, excuse me, goes and meets with this other guy. And he says, I just met with Wilkins. He said that some map you had, a Captain Kidd map or some kind of map you had inspired this map that's, you know, allowed me to find all these things on the island that I'm looking for treasure on. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, sure. And he whips it out, shows him this map. It looks nothing like Oak Island. It's not in the right part of the ocean, and it has no information that's useful to Hedden. And then the guy's like, for, you know, for 25000 you can have this. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. So it's it, – but this is the strange thing about that. It's like something's it lined, lined up. Uh, well, not everything, but enough. Yeah. You know? and so he comes back to the, he comes back to Nova Scotia, and, he's, and at that point, he and Wilkins are still corresponding or talking or however, and Wilkins is like become convinced that he's essentially a conduit to Captain Kidd 
who's long dead, by the way. So yeah. he's yeah. now saying, I must have channeled the information. Or he thinks, like, he thinks Hedden might be the, the reincarnated uh, yeah, he's, Captain Kidd. Yeah, he's but like, there's an point, occult Hedden's connection. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard enough. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's that whole thing with that map. And Not, A nice little like, aside, side story. Yeah. yeah it's just, just crazy. But the sextant is there on the beach, or it was anyway, until yeah. the destroyer yeah. came. But yeah. anyway. Oh, you know what? But they also found an intersecting tunnel measuring three feet by ten inches wide. Wide, six feet and four uh, and four inches tall, and it was lined with hemlock timbers and may have served as one of the original flood tunnels. Right. And so they're getting more proof. This is the as this goes along and people find more things, uh, they're getting more proof of artifacts and items that just point to somebody really doing a lot of engineering yes. to get this thing completed. Sophisticated they, they find another miner's oil lamp with whale oil, uh, an exploded dynamite. Well, it's hard to believe there was any dynamite that wasn't exploded on the island. <laughs> well, I don't, yeah, that would be kind of a, <laughs> yeah, it would be dangerous to find. But So in 1935, Edwin Hamilton comes into the picture. I think he actually doesn't wind up doing any work until 38. But one of the most important things he did was the second dye test. And during this dye test, they found that the dye was coming out well offshore, even way out into the water, even at low tide, and was underneath 15 feet of water where it was coming from. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, that ties in with another deep level discovery, and this is kind of important. Uh, below the bedrock at 200 feet, they find what they think is an even more extensive flooding system and possibly natural and man made caverns. Right. Yeah. Right. Combined. Like, all this stuff is working together. And then the other thing to remember, though, about this, this these flood tunnels being so far offshore is that there's been erosion. The beach has receded by up to 40 – or excuse me, 60 feet in 400 years. Yeah, you're talking the, – the east end of the island and, – and this is another interesting tidbit. Some geologists have thought that it may have been two separate islands at one time because the eastern portion, uh, the bottom parts are made with uh, sandstone, gypsum, and limestone, which are easily eroded. And that's not the case for the uh, for the chunk that's kind of closer to the mainland. Also, it's been having itself pumped out continuously by all these teams. That causes erosion in all these tunnels that's because right. they have to keep the water out to keep working on it. So you have all this anhydrite sediment and dust covering everything eroding everything it's just it's just crazy yeah it's a mess and the other the other thing to remember too is that sea level has gone up four feet in the past 400 years there in this area so the whole landscape is different the but the bottom line being that those drains uh or intakes for the flooding were probably closer to shore originally yeah. Um, so and the and the because the water would have been lower and there would have been more beach. Right. And Blankenship later on, not to get to not to get ahead of it, but he does. They do find some four large circles in the ice during the winter. Oh yeah, the the, the ice later holes. on. Yeah, <laughs> the, the mysterious ice holes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, which is uh. Yeah. There you go. But you know, Edwin Hamilton ends up also corresponding with a fellow Mason. FDR. That's Again. right. He's sending yeah. FDR information in uh, 1938. In fact, FDR was going to come to the island for a second time. Yeah. And his trip was canceled because of the war. He had lined everything up. Mm. But didn't you say Hamilton was responsible for another big discovery? Or Well, you mentioned it, the cavern. That was it. Yeah. yeah. I think that was the uh, the one big note is that, you know, by 1943, they think he spent more than 60 grand, which is a lot of money. He didn't really find much. Right. Uh, but that was a big discovery, though, is that now they're starting to get into areas below the bedrock, which is kind of crazy. So yeah. they keep going down. Yeah, and there's, there's going to be a point here where you're like, okay, when are you 
we've, you've gone past it, and now you're just finding things that are weird because you're super far underground. <laughs> well, I, there's uh, yeah, I mean, not yeah. man-made stuff, but I just mean in terms of caverns and caves and what. Who knows what? Well, is, the, the you clues know. keep leading them there. Yeah. yeah so they yeah. just, you know, again, like you're right, Scott. There's only one way to go. That's straight down. Yeah. And laterally, you know, like, and I think by this time we're we're approaching maybe thirty tunnels. Yeah. Uh, we're getting up there, so we're yeah. between like twenty and thirty tunnels. Yes, and there's been over a hundred boreholes, drill sites. There's been dynamiting. There's been excavating. No, you know what? You just said something that reminded me of an Edgar Allan Poe tie-in because it's it reminded me of the old story, the Purloin Letter, where the the crux of the story is that they're trying to find this important letter in this apartment, and they're, they're doing clever things. They're taking long hat pins and poking the cushions, see if maybe the the letter has been stuck under the you know the padding and they don't find anything and of course the the story is that the letter's been sitting out in front of them this whole time on the desk on the desk yeah. nobody bothered to check the easiest <laughs> explanation and maybe that ties in with this uh there's another poe tie-in and that professor james leachy uh, who they think did the original translation on the 90-foot stone of all the weird symbols and he's the one that came up with you know 40 feet down uh, two, million two million pounds are buried he said he was inspired by reading Poe's The Gold Bug, which is another kind of a short story where a guy's looking for treasure and finds, comes upon a cipher code, which was very popular around this time. You have to remember, since about like maybe the 1500s, ciphers and codes and coded writing was very popular to hide your message. You know, we didn't have internet encryption. So right. that's, how you, that's how you kept people from reading special things you didn't want them to know. Right. Anyway, well, there you go. I like you. Do you like me? <laughs> and it's and it's an, an undecipherable two-tiered code. Right. Of uh, yes, but he was using a simple substitution code in that story, the gold bug. Right. Okay. There you go. Interesting. Well, in 1942, everything stops because all the labor is gone to war. Yes. So the, there's nothing going on there for a little bit. It's not too long after this that one of my favorite performers of all time, uh, you know, allegations of impropriety aside, Errol Flynn takes an interest ah, in the project. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen Captain Blood, get it right now. It's such a great <laughs> yeah. pirate movie. You can see why he would be into treasure. I mean, he, yeah, he's yeah. playing these swashbucklers. He already had the shirt and pants, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Know, the, the and Robin Hood, also. He's yeah, the best Robin right. Hood that ever lived. Um, but anyway, he... Could, he actually never really got involved because Hamilton still had the rights when he was uh, taking an interest in it. In 1946, this is one of my favorite notes from O'Connor's book, uh, the shortest search of all time took place. <laughs> a GI, 26-year-old GI, who had won a map of Oak Island's treasure from an auction at a radio station in New York, showed up on the island unannounced and commenced to digging after a very short amount of time, his treasure hunting career ended and he left. <laughs> what? Do you even know his name? Uh, yeah, his name yeah. was Nathan Lindenbaum. Oh, I didn't, didn't come up here. Mr. Yeah. Lindenbaum, he probably, of all the guys that searched, he probably came out ahead because he put the least amount of effort into it. Whatever the cost of that map was at the auction. Oh. You know. Mm. So anyway, there's become a lot of fights over the rights for the land. There's political manipulation going on. Everyone's trying to get control of the treasure trove license and the lots and who's got them, who's leasing, who's selling. There's there's a lot of sort of shenanigans that go on. I'm not going to go into them because it, it would take forever and we're already, you know, we're giving you a lot of details. <laughs> well into tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we're, really, yeah. We're, we're now we're moving on to... 1955? Yeah, let's... Let's get to, oh, yeah, well, you say 55. Are you talking about George? George Green. Yeah. Just another character. Cowboy hat and a cigar. 
chomping, cigar chomping, Texas oil drilling engineer. Yes, very outspoken, a, a big personality. Well, you know, look, we have uh, friends from Texas, and they, they like to tell tall tales occasionally. Not that he was lying about anything, but he was very persuasive. Yes. And, and again, another guy who was like, I can get this done in, in two weeks. Yes. You know. Apparently, he found a 40-foot cavern beneath limestone 140 feet down. Yeah, that's what was crazy. Now we're talking about huge caverns. Yeah, 40 that, feet tall. Yeah. Well, it, you know what? Limestone is, is kind of soft. It's easily carved out by nature and by humans. Yes. You know, and he had a great quote, too. His quote ended up, I think, in that original Reader's Digest article from 1965, and he says, Someone went to a lot of trouble to bury something here, and unless he was the greatest practical joker of all time, it must have well been worth the effort. Oh, yeah. So, you know... Chum, chum. I, I, <laughs> but he also ends up like respecting the place because, like so many before him, like you know what, it kicked my butt. Yeah, so. well, you know when they when they found that cavern, you know what he did? He flooded it with a hundred thousand gallons of water. Oh yeah, and the water just disappeared. It never. Well, it, it did never, nothing. Yeah, it, did, it was so just there, gone. So that kind of points to there being another outlet to it, right? Yeah, or the room is just really big. Because <laughs> <laughs> he could not fill it. I mean, and that room isn't necessarily man-made. You know, it no, could no, be a natural no, that's pocket. What I'm, no, yeah. that's what I'm saying is yeah. that there's a lot of natural caverns and erosion that happens, uh, you know, naturally. Could be that. Well, Green, you know, the thing was he was he was convinced that he was going to get to the bottom of it. He swore that he was going to come back there. And he kept in touch with Mel Chapel for years and years and years. And he was like, I'll get back there. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. Unfortunately, in 1962... He was murdered. <laughs> what? In British Guyana in the jungle on uh, some sort of uh, geographic expedition. Oh, wow. You mean he's exploring for oil again? He's back. I that. don't know why he was there, but That's crazy. he didn't come back. Well, you know, his, uh, his uncle was John Shields, and John Shields was associated with FDR during the Bowdoin Project of 1909. Oh, well, there you go. There, it's a, there's a lot of these connections where the, this information gets passed down. It's a little bit of a Michigan J. Frog thing where somebody right. thinks they have this money-making thing. Yeah. It gets passed to the next guy. They can't do anything with it. What's they, happening they in all these, like, these um, dark rooms at private clubs in Manhattan? Hey, where people the hear a great men. story, yeah. you know, and, and these are adventurous people. This is not for the faint-hearted or yeah. the light-walleted either. Um, however, you know, before Green died, a gentleman came to visit the island named Bob Restall, and Bob actually got yeah. the story from Green about the island. Uh, that's where he heard it, right? Yeah. Now, uh, you know what Bob was, at the time, was most famous for? The Globe of Death. Yeah. yeah. Well, he and his wife. This is kind of yeah, crazy and, uh, and very – I'm just in awe of their skill. They were carnival performers, motorcycle stunt performers. Yes. And this is the man, and you've all seen it, that invented the sphere, the cage. Did, oh, he, he invented Yeah, that. he was yeah. the guy wow. that invented the cage where they get inside with the motorcycles and ride around in circles. Crisscrossing. Crisscrossing. Coming dangerously close. Yes, close enough that Mildred, his wife, uh, broke her jaw at one point, yeah. and he broke his arm at another uh. point. She was a ballerina. They they met when she was only 17. Wow. There was true love, yeah. those two. Um, well, they're, they're both adventurous. I mean, yes. that's, a, that's pretty gutsy, riding a motorcycle at high speeds. Yeah, they did that for an 20 iron years. Ball. Yeah, 20 yeah, years. Traveling, right, traveling around Canada. And that, in fact, that's the picture I tweeted uh, tonight when we were in the studio. I tweeted that we were recording, and I, I, I said, this globe of <laughs> death globe of death. Has a, it, it has to do with it. So the rest all take a significant interest in Oak Island, and they managed to convince Chapel to let them undertake a project. And yeah, it's they, a 50% split. 
That's and, right. Uh, it's 50%. Exactly. So they move onto the island. They're living in two shacks. They're like 16. Yeah, he moves his whole family there. Yeah, the kids, everything's in one well, he's, shack. He's got is... two, yeah, he's got two sons. Uh, there's an 18-year-old Bobby Restall, Robert, yes. uh, Robert K., yes. I think. And, um, you know, and so he's able to help work. And then there's a younger son, and he's kind of helping out a little bit. But, uh, but Bobby does a lot of the hard digging. And this is all by hand. Yes. They don't have a lot of fancy machinery. They didn't have a lot of money starting off, but he was just, you know, he wanted to take a crack at it. I think he had $8,000 in savings, yeah. and that's about it. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they went to work on it. Yeah, and they actually found some interesting things while they were doing this. And this is, you know, just mostly by hand, as I said, with his 18-year-old son at the time helping him. And uh, one thing they found was a, a stone that had the date 1704 carved into it, which you'll, that's also a photo that uh, Mildred is holding up the rock. That's right. And uh, you know what? An interesting thing from the new series, and we're, we're jumping ahead a little by mentioning the series that's on the History Channel, but the daughter, Lee Lamb, is on the show, and she's an elderly lady now. The Restle's daughter. Yes, the Restle's daughter. She is on there, the last surviving member, and she's written a couple of books herself, Oak Island Obsession, The Restall Story, and also Oak Island Family, The Restall Hunt for Buried Treasure. So she's, you know, she knows the story. She was there at the time, and she brings in some journals for the present guys, uh, Rick and Marty Lagina, to, to look over, because her son Bobby was also taking notes uh, every day, of their progress and little, little things that they found. And so with the 1704 stone, he said it was found on top of a pile of stones we tossed out of an area of paving on the pit to cave in shaft line. So that's kind of where they're digging. That kind of gives you an idea. And they find a pile of stones and under the stones, not previously discovered is a one foot diameter hole believed to be the work of like, you know, 256 years ago. So they're finding a few things that aren't that have not been discovered by others. They're making some progress. And two more interesting things that were in Bobby's journal that Lee Lamb, you know, kind of uh, uh, led. Bobby's her brother. Was yes, her, exactly. Her older brother. Yes, yeah. exactly. So one thing in his journal was that apparently they found what they claimed to be a spiraling tunnel in the money pit itself that kind of went down counterclockwise. I've never heard that being mentioned before. The other thing that's interesting is that according to Bobby's journal, he and his dad believed they were close to finding a, quote, mystery box, unquote, that or some kind of vault that Jack Adams, and he was the former caretaker on the island in the 1930s, he claimed he found this buried under the water in the, in the swamp. They were in the process of trying to locate this box. If you watch the show, you'll see there's also some interest in the swamp area for various reasons. So that's kind of an interesting Wait, how did development. They, how did they find this box? The mention of the box, again, was from uh, Jack Adams, and he was a caretaker who claims that he had found some kind of box there in the 30s. They hadn't found it yet. They were going to look for it. And then tragedy strikes, and the island takes its next four victims in one fell swoop. Yeah, this is an awful story. Yeah, this is, this is terrible. On August 17th, 1965, uh, Robert Restall, the dad, he is digging in an area that I think is kind of near the cave-in pit in between in between the two shafts. Right. The cave-in pit and the money pit. Yeah. And he is he's by himself and he's working on a pump. And, and at first they weren't sure how this happened. The first, the idea was that somehow maybe the carbon monoxide from the motor made him woozy. He passes out and he falls into the shaft. Yeah. Of course, now Bobby, his, his son sees this, immediately runs over, jumps in. And, and tries to save his dad. 
he instantly there's succumbs. W- there's water in the bottom too, right? Yeah, that's the thing. There, there's four feet of water. And the coroner, I believe, said the cause of death was drowning. But what knocked them out so quickly was deadly H2S gas, hydrogen sulfide. It, it immediately could, you'd pass out. And that's what happened. He got a whiff of this. And it's naturally occurring. It's, it is, you know, comes from dead and decaying plant matter, biological matter that's been in the ground. And it can happen naturally. You've heard of the phrase a canary in a coal mine? Yes. There, there are poisonous gases down there. And, and the miners of the old days would take a canary down because they're very susceptible to uh, – small birds are very susceptible to these gases. The, the bird passes out. You better get out of there. Right. So unfortunately, he falls down the pit. Bobby goes after him. He doesn't last very long. He ends up in the water. And there's two other people that immediately rush in as well. One of them is Carl Grazer. And I think he's one of the investors uh, who was just on, happened to be on the island that day mm-hmm. visiting. He jumps, he goes down the ladder and he loses consciousness. And then right after that, Cyril Hiltz, who I think was a teenager and he was, he was a local kid just helping out for the summer. He also goes down and uh, he succumbs. And I think there's one gentleman, and he also is in the um, he's in the History Channel show, mm-hmm. and he's still living. Yes, and his name's Andrew Demont. Yes, and he also went in, but he was able to help get. There were some other people, and they helped get everybody out, and somehow he managed to survive. But that was four people who died right then. Yes, so now the total is at six. We're at right? six, yes. and one more to the legend. But that was yeah. So that was awful. And yeah, so it was a bad day. So uh, of the rest, all the surviving members are going to be Mildred and her daughter, who is Lee Lamb, right? Yes, Lee Lamb is right. She is the survive. You know, she's the daughter who wasn't. She, I don't think she was near there anywhere near there. Uh, the mom was there. You know, she's in the shack preparing lunch. And the youngest, Mildred, yeah. yeah, the youngest son comes in and he's just, he doesn't even stop for lunch. And she says, well, what's going on? And of course they, they find out then there was a New York firefighter that was visiting Captain Edward White and he was able to get, get a rope down and he pulled up Leonard Kaiser, who was just another, I think another worker there. They were able to get some folks up and save some lives, but they, they it was just too late. They, the other folks drowned. Yeah. In the bottom of the probably, pit. Probably unconscious because they yeah, were yeah, unconscious you, you immediately, Yeah, you immediately yeah. go under and, of course, you, you breathe in and that's, that's the end of that. Right. And almost immediately, another person comes in by arrangement with Mel Chapel. Robert Dunfield comes in to immediately take over. And did, didn't you say? Yeah. In O'Connor's book, he actually talks about how Mildred had said to him... My son and husband were not even in the ground when Mel Chapel was trying to get the rights transferred from us over to Dunfield to so that you know because the most important thing was that the excavation continued. Well, yeah, Mel Chapel, they still had time on Robert Restall's contract, right, with Mel Chapel, right, and it, you know Chapel was going to get fifty percent. Restall had to split had to only take 25%, give the other 25% to his investors. So he was getting a, a quarter of all that. And uh, yeah, so that... And you know, Mil- Mildred was a colorful person and she had a lot of interesting things to say about it. There's, you know, various quotes with her in O'Connor's book talking about how she wasn't sure anything was there. Or she thought maybe it had been taken away a long time ago. And, you know, it was it was hard for her living on that island in that little shack with her whole family. She, was, oh, she yeah. said they- that she was... You know, she regretted the day that that Bob ever visited there and and found out about it. No, but that's the pull. That's the lure of this. And it's and again, it's just not. I think it's just more than finding a chest of coins. You know, yeah. because yeah, maybe that's uh maybe that's ten million, whatever, a lot of money back then. 
but there's an allure to it. And I think because it is so mysterious, because it isn't just X marks the spot, you know, and you, if you dig for 10 feet down, you're going to find something. It's, it's, uh, it's the nature of the whole setup. Yes. Yeah. So there you have it. Well, we've managed to cover roughly another hundred years in about, uh, <laughs> close to an hour <laughs> and a half here. Well, we're up to, we're up to the mid 60, we're up to 1965. Yes, we are. And on that note, with the tragic death of the Restalls, we're going to wrap this one up. We will be back in two weeks with part three of our four-part series on Oak Island. Yes, we're now saying... Maybe five. No, (laughs) it can't go beyond four. It's four. Yes. Because we're almost ready. What's going to happen is we're going to come back in two weeks with part three, which is going to take you from 1965 to the present day. And we're going to cover all the things that have happened in what we might consider modern times. Right. Yes. Up until now. Yeah. And then part four of our show will be about. Oh, that'll be the fun, fringy one. Yeah, that's when, when we're going. all the conspiracies and uh, possible treasures and who put them there. Yes, the explanations, who built it, and why, and that one's going to be a lot of fun. So stay with us, and we'll be back in two weeks. And thanks for listening. <laughs> Remember to visit AstonishingLegends.com and take our very short survey for a chance to win a free hat. We'd like to thank Web Wizards for the original design and continued maintenance on our website. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane and our sound design by Ryan McCullough. Thanks to Jim Creative Design for our logo. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at AstonishingLegends.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.